Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hey team, fabulous to have you join me again this week. Gosh, I have most amazing, most amazing interview for you like this one. I've really been looking forward to for such a long time. This is a lady who actually, I read her book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, years and years ago before cancer even touched our lives. Um, And it's what I always had in the back of my head that if anything should ever happen, that was the first place I was going to. Um, and now I finally managed to get this special lady on the show. So I have Dr. Nasha Winters, um, who is a cancer expert and someone who's lived this experience herself as a 19-year-old was given a terminal uh, diagnosis and multiple organ failure, like absolutely horrific um, health journey that she was on then. And in her path forward, as she tells her story, um, she's managed to, you know, just change so much and change all the research and just developing systems for people to be able to understand the metabolic approach to cancer. She's absolutely gold. So I do hope that you enjoy this episode with Dr. Winters. Uh, before we head over to the show, if you are struggling with a cancer journey, if you, um, uh, wanting to prevent it, and that should be all of us. Um, then you know, do reach out to me if you've got any questions. I have now got a ebook slash interview series together, and Dr. Winter's uh, interview will also be on there. Um, and this is available now if you're interested in getting this whole like we're now up to 17 interviews with some of the world's leading experts on cancer and the latest in research. Uh, this is a invaluable resource to anybody who's wanting to prevent or care for someone who has cancer. You need to know about this stuff. So make sure you go and check that out on lisatamity.com. Um, and yeah, on, on that point too, make sure you go and check out, uh, our epigenetics program and DNA testing, the health coaching, as well as our curated anti-aging and health longevity supplement regime. Um, lots happening over there, lots happening on the business. So I do hope you go and have a look over at lisatamity.com. And thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoy doing this and I know that you're going to get so much out of this interview with Dr. Winters. Well, hey, everyone. I'm super excited. I'm jumping out of my seat. Um, couldn't sleep last night because I had so much questions buzzing around in my head. I've got Dr. Nasha Winters with me. Dr. Nasha, thank you so much for coming on. I'm just an absolute, a bit of a fangirl. So excuse me if I'm a little bit red in the cheeks, everybody. Um, <laughs> this is an exciting moment for me. <laughs> Welcome. Um, well, thank you. And I was just telling you before the show, I've even, I kind of feel the same. Like I just, uh, this, this, I've been reading about you and your mom and the story of what's compelled you to even have somebody like me on your show. I'm really honored to be here. And you are the living example of that. We are far more powerful than we're led to believe. So thank you for having me. And I can't wait to see where this is going to go. Oh, this is just absolutely gold. Thanks for that. And um, so Dr. Winters, you have a, an incredible um, history, like as a, as a youngster having cancer. So let's start there with your backstory and then walk us forward through there. Sure. You know, I, I I tell you, no, no one ends up doing the work that I do or even the work that you do just like out of a whim one day going, I think cancer would be really interesting to work with. So <laughs> it, it always starts from some very personal experience, right? So I'm no different than that than anybody else who ends up in this in these shoes, if you will. But my health, I don't think I had health 
before my cancer diagnosis. When I look back now, I mean, what is that always, you know, hindsight's 2020. Um, but I, I, I had major colic as a baby. I could not tolerate any breast, you know, any, uh, of the formulas. Cause no one, God forbid we offer the breast at that yeah. time in 1971. And so, um, but every formula, they finally settled on a, on a um, soy based formula, which completely, completely wreaked havoc in my system. Um, started my period at nine, wow. started on birth control pills at 11 for endometriosis. By 14, I was also diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I was covered with cystic acne. I had major, major IBS. I was like a drum belly all the time. It was just like these crazy layer cake issues. Um, I took major uh, injury prone. I was a volleyball player. I was an avid athlete. And that's probably the only thing that kept me going because I had kind of community and exercise, but my health just took a beating. I would tear ligaments and dislocate shoulders and all the things. So no surprise that at 19, when I started having these increasing symptoms going on and on and would land me in excruciating pain in the ER every month for six months. And I would just say, you know, something's wrong. You're like, no, but you have endometriosis. It's just your endometriosis. It's just your polycystic ovarian. It's just at that time, I also diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Like it's just your RA. It's just your IBS flaring. And by the time I was just shy of my 20th birthday, I landed in the ER. Um, I could not breathe. I had a neighbor drive me to the hospital. I got there. I had gotten really skinny on my arms and legs and my belly just was getting bigger and bigger. And I couldn't figure it out because it wasn't changing any of my diet stuff. It just, something was really wrong. By the time I got there, I was almost unconscious. My um, uh, pulse oximetry was down below 80. Uh, they realized that my abdomen was full of fluid. I had food around my heart and, and um, in my lungs, I had end organ in um, end stage organ failure in my liver and my kidneys. Wow. And I had a small intestine bowel blockage, which I hadn't pooped for a couple of weeks, but that was my normal. So oh. no one ever thought anything about it. And then what was going in, I would throw back up. So I just thought I had some GI, but like, I wasn't sure what was going on. And finally I had a different doc on board that night who finally listened to me. Mm. You and I talked about this before the show, like someone who actually mm. was with me in that moment and saw me more than the histrionic teenager. Right. And that's when he decided we better do a little bit of a more thorough workup. Lo and behold, and it still took a couple of weeks to get the final biopsy results, but the labs he finally ordered, um, opted to order and the imaging he opted to order showed a grape size fruit um, tumor in the, on my right ovary lesions in my liver filled pelvic cavity with tumors and carcinomatosis and lymph nodes just lighting up like Christmas trees, as well as the bowel obstruction secondary to this whole process. And then ascites fluid, which is a malignant fluid um, out. And when they started to drain a little bit of the fluid, my electrolytes were so off. I almost died just from the first fluid pull, but it was a bloody um, exudate. So they knew at that time it was malignant fluid, not just inflammatory fluid. So they basically kind of were like, oh crap, here she goes. And there was another doctor there. She's done. And they even said, you know, with treatment, you might get three months. And I'm like, well, without treatment, what are we looking at? You know, because I'm like, they're like, well, first of all, we can't get treatment. You're too sick. You're too sick. So they were not expecting to see me live to the end of the night of the year 1991. Wow. So here we are. It's 2022. You're not dead. No, I'm not. Sometimes I feel like it every once in a while when I'm burning the candle at both ends. But um, no, I, it's been a journey and there was no, like, this is where I know our story will start to go is everyone's like, what did you do? I mean, I'm 31 years in and I'm still doing it. I'm still learning things. There was no one thing. Um, The craziest part in my story, and I was really uh, 
private about this story for a very long time, especially when I was in clinical practice, because I didn't want to, my story was my story. It was nobody else's. What worked for me will not work for somebody else. What worked for that person will not work for me. I'm the end of one in this. And that's my passion and commitment to helping other people know they're in of one. Um, But accidentally, I think one of the biggest players is the bowel blockage didn't allow me to eat. Mm. And it only took another 25 years for them to get the research to go, you know what? Fasting's really amazing at shrinking tumors. <laughs> um, so weird, despite the 1909 research from Dr. Moreshi and others, you know, for years, like standard of care up until the 1960s, 70s was fasting cancer wow. patients. Yep. And then someone made, kind of was like, had some food issues and decided that was really an atrocious thing to do to a cancer patient and then switched the gears. And we started making up synthetic bullshit to pour into their system instead. Insure and co. And the Ah. only thing that ensures is their imminent death. Because if you just read the label, if you have even one functioning brain cell, and I'm I'm saying this harshly to the dietitians out there and the, and the oncologists out there, I'm married to a nutritional biochemist for crying out loud. You know, this is, (laughs) Insane. There's nothing there that's actually nutritive. It's all synthetic. It's all chemical. It's all sugar. It's all corn and high fructose corn syrup. It's all gluten. It's all soy products, which are heavily GMO. There is literally nothing in there. You could make your own shake for the same price or less with actual real ingredients to have the same effect of, of supporting, you know, a meal uh, replacement or additional meal support. It's just incredible that we are pushing this stuff on. Someone's getting rich. Absolutely. And it's crazy. They're getting rich on stuff that probably costs them five cents a bottle and selling it for $3 a bottle, you know, out there. It's like, this is nuts. So I'm harsh on this because some of the most foundational things we can do are free. (laughs) You know, fasting is one of them, obviously the right time and place. And when you don't have a choice, like I did, even today, if somebody lands in the hospital with a small bowel obstruction, they'll fast them, you know, like let's give the bowel some rest and see if you can overcome this. And so that was probably one of my first accidental strategies. And then my second accidental strategy was because I was pre-med because I was working in a library, um, really late hours and whatnot, I stumbled upon the work of people like Otto Warburg Yeah, in this library. I stumbled across the work of Mina Bissell. This is 1991, you guys. This is pre- this Pre-internet. Is Google. Yeah. No, we didn't yeah. have Google. No, Dr. Google <laughs> at that time. Pass. Right. No, just Dewey Decimal Systems, the whole bit. So- I started thinking about this because I was pre-med. So I was in my anatomy, my physiology, my chemistry courses, and all, everything they talked about then was that, sorry, I've got this like rogue hair that just keeps deciding to flush across my head. It's swatting fake things <laughs> off of me here. Um, it was just like, the, the, you know, what we were being taught in those classes was about cancer as a two hit theory, that it's a gen- accumulation of genetic mutations. And then one big genetic mutation comes along and the whole thing gets going. That has been our belief system since 1914. Mm-hmm. So Theodore Bovary put that idea out there. And it is just that a theory. And yet what we've managed to do over a hundred plus years is to show that it's either a not at all correct, or at least not the only component Mm. that it's like a downstream effect versus the starting point. And that's where in a similar timeframe, Otto Warburg in 1920 was saying that something at the way the body is using its energy at the energetic source at the mitochondrial level. So from your 
you know, sixth grade bio- biology class of learning about um, the mighty mitochondria and that it's a, a, a component of, you know, it's our factory for making ATP, the energy source of the body. It does that, but so, so, so much more. And it was recognizing in that time that, that cancer cells had an aberrant energy system process going on and healthy cells had something very different. And so he was just observing that. And we've learned over time that that is probably where the cancer dynamic starts. Mm -hmm. And when that aberrant energy system starts to take root, that then we have the inability to protect our genome. And it becomes more vulnerable to the assaults that it's met with day by day. And so we need to back it up a notch and start more upstream about how can we protect that amazing little organelle, that amazing little energy factory going on within every one of the cells of our body so that it can be more resilient to um, whatever it's exposed to and prevent those genetic changes that can happen downstream from that downstream and, and mitochondria are at the basis of so many health issues and, so and they've, they've done experiments haven't they where they've taken out uh, 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 the dna out of a uh, out of a cancer cell and stuck it into a healthy cell expecting the healthy cell to turn cancerous and yep. in, in fact it's not it hasn't been because the mitochondria was healthy in the other cell is yes. that correct i'm Probably and I love it. You're, you're speaking specifically to if your listeners have got any geeks out there like me and they want to look up nuclear cell transfer studies. Those are the studies. Nuclear cell. Ones, That's right. And the crazy thing is this is basically what disproves the somatic mutation theory, the yep. genetic theory of cancer, and has been proven over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And yet we're still like, eh, still just driving down the same path to nowhere. I know. You know that approach. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. It is. It's absolutely insane. And I'm, I'm working with a patient in the South Island and, um, and he's got prostate, prostate cancer. And I, I was just telling the story before the show, but I think it's worth telling again because people need to understand this. I have them all on the metabolic approach. We're doing the right diet. We're doing the right natural supplements. I have them under a, a couple of different integrated oncologists. I have them um, with uh, microbiome specialists, et cetera, et cetera. We've built up this big team around him. Like we are going for it. He's he's amazing board of directors, right? Exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just the CEO of the, the project here and this is what's going on. And he's, his PSA has been going down, et cetera. Things are looking good. He's feeling no energy because they've wiped out is you know testosterone and so on which is normal um that he feels no energy but he goes to the oncologist yesterday his local oncologist who's not (laughs) on the side of the fence if you like and she just goes this is all absolute bullshit and this is dangerous and you've got to get off it and you've got to start drinking and sure because you're too slim and i'm like you've got to be kidding me this insure stuff as you just mentioned before is absolute poison they they put that shit into my mum when she had her aneurysm and now i know about brain injuries and the inability to uptake glucose in the brain and i'm like what the hell uh, same thing and th- this is the problem we've you've got these doctors who are trained in the pharmacological and the somatic theory of cancer and they know chemo and they know drugs very very they well they know so well yeah. yep. super yep. well and we need them for that Absolutely. but then they go and don't play well with the other kids in the sandbox <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and instead of being a part of this big team Exactly. Because this is what I love that you're bringing this to the conversation because everyone thinks you have to make a choice of either or. Yeah. You don't. You don't. In fact, you shouldn't. I mean, no. 
you are a stage one or a two patient, you know, super early on in your process, you can probably get away with that somatic mutation theory approach. Okay. My, my hope is that you don't just settle for that. And at least once you're through, once you ring that bell at the end of whatever standard of care therapy you're doing, now the real work begins for you to understand what beat the crap out of your mitochondria to get you there in that first place and then do everything you can to clean it up. So it doesn't come back, which it will 70% of the time. Mm. So, but when you've moved beyond that, when the metabolic shifting has happened and it's happening more frequently, because basically the cancer cell gets wiser and wiser and manipulates itself more and more as the body gets sicker and sicker, standard of care has less and less to offer in those mm-hmm. environments. And so then for sure, you need the full board of directors on board of people who are terrain experts not just the tumor experts. And so that's what you've set up for this gentleman. And what's unfortunate is that there are, and this happens even in my community, in the integrative or quote unquote alternative community, we have as many of us being just as bad as that standard of care oncologist saying, we won't do chemo, we won't do radio, we won't do surgery. That's all bad. Yeah, it's not true. Both ends are problematic. Mm. We must build a bridge. And that's what you were speaking to before we got on. It's like, but when you have a patient in the middle, yeah, he's terrified. Terrified and overwhelmed. Yeah, totally. And this is what, you know, I've spent weeks building his mindset and his attitude. And, you know, I'm doing this with lots of them uh, because I, I had a, a conversation with a doctor. I was an MC at a wellness conference two weeks ago. And there was a doctor who's the head of the medical council, head of the, the, one of the insurance companies here, um, incredibly brilliant doctor. At the end of his speech, at a wellness conference, by the way, comes up and says, this is all woo-woo bullshit, all of it, DNA testing, all of it, everything here is rubbish. And I'm like, wow, wow, okay, uh, I do a lot of that woo-woo bullshit that you're talking about, and here's my book, and here's my story. And he says to me, well, aren't you making people false hope? And I'm like, are you Mm. not taking away people's all hope when they couldn't look like my mum would be dead if if we if we'd you know believed that there was no tomorrow and she'd have been dead ten times over in the last seven years if I believed and I just let it be because somebody in the medical fraternity said that she's got no hope. And here I think is so powerful that you brought this up because just this week there's a free launching of Dr. Kelly Turner's docu series on oh, wow. um, you know, the uh, radical radical hope. radical mission, and it's yeah. the second kind of play out of radical remission of her first book. This is a, this is a scientist a sociologist who did the research over spontaneous healer you know healings in over a thousand patients that she collected the data on yeah, and then looking for what are the common denominators of why these folks overcome the odds. Okay. And in her final thing, she wrote the book about, you know, um, radical remission about the nine sort of common factors. She's added a 10th in her radical hope and her docu-series, but ultimately only two, maybe three now with her third, her new edition are tangible, meaning the three that are tangible, that are common denominators to all those people who survived are on the spectrum of dietary change, supplements, and exercise. The other seven are completely around mental, emotional um, well-being, mindset, spiritual fa- uh, faculties, mm-hmm. and community. So it has nothing to do with any pill or potion or diet or lifestyle modification. It's so about the soul's journey. And so when someone says, how dare you give them hope? <laughs> wow. They just pretty much took out seven of the 10 really powerful equations of those who can overcome the odds. 
you know, and even our teacher, like Bernie Siegel, who's just what he just hit 95, I think his book, Love, Medicine, Miracles, and many, many others. I've heard him present gajillions of times over my career, integral to my own healing and my own reading process. He literally would not do surgery on children because he's a surgeon, would not do surgery on kids if they could not draw a positive outcome of their surgery. Wow. He knew more work to do to get them ready for the surgery. Shoot. And so these are the examples. So yes, we still do. It's bizarre to me. We have entire fields based on Robert Ader's work and others who run the gamut since then on psychoneuroimmunology. The very fact that our thoughts impact our immune system and our nervous system and our endocrine system in such a way that you can think yourself well or think yourself sick. And so if someone's still choosing I'm going to put this out for your patient if he hears this later. If he's still choosing to go back to someone who does not align with his ideology and his belief system, he himself is contributing to his cancering journey. Mm. And that's hard for people to hear. Mm. It's hard for people to hear because then they think we're blaming the patient. We're not because you don't know what you don't know until you know. So I'm hopefully, hopefully dropping a, a, a pearl of wisdom into this mix here that's like, we do have the ability. We are far more powerful than we've been led to believe. And we do have our own role to play in whether or not we get well or get sick. And we do have our own role to play on who we choose to join us at our board of directors. Then it's really okay to have an oncologist who's like, I don't get any of this. I don't understand it. But clearly it's making a difference because this man had the data to prove it's making a difference. Mm -hmm. And when someone has still put the blinders on like, nope, it's all BS. This isn't happening. There's something wrong. How can, like, if the fact that yeah. he felt emotionally charged after that conversation should be enough indication that he needs a different oncologist? Yeah, which is not easy, of course, in the public system to get. <laughs> so you, you, you're left working with, yeah. with uh, and, and I had the same journey with my mum. The very first oncologist that I went to uh, at the very start of our journey just said, uh, there's absolutely nothing we can do. She's 80, she's fragile, she's got this past history, and there we could, you know, do some heavy guns, but it would kill her, and there's nothing we can do. Go home, get ready to die. And I, you know, just went, and we're ignoring that mum. And I'm going back to my team of people like yourself, your book, your, you know, and I'm, and I, I'd read your book <laughs> years ago and, and I, it had just been in the back of my head, right? I'd, I'd like, okay, because I'm always studying something. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, I'm going back to that. And then I discovered the metabolic approach to cancer general, like the whole, you know, Jane McClellan's work and Dom D'Agostino's work and Dr. Longo's work. And, and, and off I went on this massive journey down this big, big, deep hole. And, and in that process, I went to a private oncologist because I obviously wasn't getting anywhere with this, with this one. And I had to drive five hours to another town with my sick mum, take him. And he, and I came with the advanced genetic testing even. I'd done that as well, which was helpful. Uh, and I said, I want these chemo. This is the chemo that I want. This is the immunotherapy I want. This is the, the, the approach I want to do. I want to do intravenous vitamin C. Well, I was already doing that, that stuff and ozone and hyperbaric. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, that makes a whole lot of sense, but I'm not going to make you drive five hours every week to see me. I'm going to talk to my colleagues back in, in my hometown and get them on board. And awesome. he managed to do that and got me under another 
oncologist and this oncologist and I was ready for battle <laughs> I came prepared like a, a lawyer for a court case with all my papers and this is why you know because I've done battle before many times and um, this one was completely different and he was like oh that makes a whole lot of sense yes we'll do that and everything that I've asked for along the way and I've pushed the boundaries uh, he's done you know and it, it's just been fantastic and you know he can't advise me on anything that I'm doing as far as like, he's not allowed to say the diet's good or the not diet's yeah, not good, but he's, yeah. he, he cooperates. And that's all you're asking for, right? Okay. Is someone that listens. Well, and here's the irony is if you are someone who has been studying in integrative oncology, your job is to know everything that the standard oncologist has to know with regards to drug interactions, herb interactions, nutrient interactions around the NCCN guidelines, which is what we call them in the United States, which are basically the, the, the super bowl, like talk about the board of directors that tells you, this is how we do standard of care. So we watch those, we keep track of those. We keep up on what the latest drugs are. We look what's in the research, the trials. That's what I have to know that too, right? It's, it's daunting. I understand it's a full, full, full-time job and I, and I'm doing my best to keep up with it. So I know when someone's mm. an oncologist and that's their world, that's all they're ingesting. But I also have to know all of the herbs, the supplements, the other integrative therapy, you know, in, uh, vetted interventions. I have to understand. I have to think about things. In fact, I have a lot more biochemistry in my training than my standard care colleagues do. That's just the nature of naturopathic medicine in the United States. It's different in other parts of the world, but we have a lot more pharmacology. We have a lot more biochemistry. We definitely have a lot more nutrition. I mean, yeah. that, that's not hard to do, but we have a lot, lot more nutrition. And so there's these pieces where I have to play in there in both worlds. I have to be fluent yep. in both worlds. And so I am super careful and thoughtful. There are a lot of patients out there going it alone who are absolutely taking things they should not be taking either by themselves if they're not doing standard of care, they're just like, this isn't a fit. This is actually wrong for you. This is actually going to make things worse. Or they're taking things quietly that their oncologist doesn't know they're taking are completely contraindicated with the conventional therapies. This is why I don't ever recommend someone go it alone. I was stupid, young enough, stupid enough. There was no Dr. Google. There were no resources to figure it out, but I also had a scientific brain. Yeah. Um, I also had, I knew where to ask questions. I knew how to resource for myself. I know how to advocate for myself. And I managed to kind of kick the can down the road a little bit longer to learn something new to apply to myself and something new to apply. And then to start to practice applying it to others and then hundreds more and then thousands more and tens of thousands of more. And now I train doctors to know how to do this with their patients. And I train patient advocates to know how to be the bridge between the doctor and the patient. And so it's expanding now in this way that we are trying to blanket the universe. So we have resources at every neck of the woods to help support patients on this journey, because you still have, you know, at least in the United States, we have 12 million. Well, I, I think this is a U.S. statistic, 12 million. No, it might be world, 12 million oncologists worldwide. Wow. We have almost half of our population is expected to experience cancer in their lifetime by 2030. Wow. 12 million doctors are not enough. No, enough. They need to branch out and grasp all the support they can get. Um, survivorship is up, you know, which is a good, good news, partly, partly because we're diagnosing things earlier as well, but what are we doing for, for survivorship for these folks? Because they may survive the cancer, but now they're facing a lifetime of other conditions based on the treatments they had. That is not in their wheelhouse. They were not trained into that. 
people like me that is in our wheelhouse. So the point is that we all have something to bring to the table and that we are working together, not separate. And so I just spoke at a pediatric brain tumor symposium, (laughs) a thousand people in the room. And it was in Washington, D.C. at a big congressional thing and bringing the best of the best researchers and all these families dealing with one of the most aggressive brain tumors called DIPG, which typically has a six to nine month survival rate. And even one of the doctors who was head of of NCI, National um, Cancer Institute, for 25 years, and he's been in the pediatric oncology world for 40 years, he literally said, if I could just see one DIPG cure in my career, I'd be happy. Wow. And I'm sitting here in the audience like, and then I had to get up in a very conservative room, in a very conservative state, in a very conservative environment, and try to bring them understanding about what is integrative oncology. You're brave. Um, I was actually surprised it was like pulled with the hook off the table, but I asked the room and a thousand people, I said, please raise your hand. If you've applied some form of integrative or alternative medicine, along with your standard of care, eight people raised their hand in that room, eight out of a thousand. And And four of them were sitting at the table. I was sitting because they were the very people that brought me to this conference. Uh, Right. Yeah. And so I basically called boo on it and said, so let me tell you what the national and international statistics say. It says that 84% of you have actually done it, but more than 80% of that number will never tell their physician. Yeah. And so that has to change. And so I'm like, look around those eight hands that were brave enough to tell you you're not alone. And there are many of you here who aren't telling your doctors, your doctors do think it's hooey, do think it's bullshit, or have seen the negative side of it when it backfires because the patients aren't being properly guided and properly transparent with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so your um, conventional team is not being pushed to learn this. I have to know what they know, but they don't have to know what I know. Exactly. There are some of them, because I train them, they're jumping in and they're like, I'm in, I'm tired of seeing these outcomes. I am yeah. tired of watching people die every single day, 1600 people a day dying, you know, in the United States alone from cancer. It's like, this is not okay. Right. So these are the pieces where they're like, we got to do something different. So if you have someone who's really closed to even bringing that conversation to the table, please look elsewhere. And don't keep it a secret because you need the guidance and the support and you need the blessings and the relationship of both. And so it's going to be patient driven. It's the patient demand. This is why I can even have conversations like this today. Cause I started having these conversations 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. No one was ready to hear it. No, you'd have been years. struck off <laughs> big time. Like I spent the first 20 years of my career trying to convince people. Yeah. I I finally, the last 10 years, I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to keep doing what I know and we'll see what happens. We get about a thousand calls a month looking for someone who practices the way that I approach this. Wow. All over the world. These are all patients desperate for this knowledge. All patients desperate. And we only have 120 physicians who've come through our training with only 30 more that just started now. We can churn out between, you know, 50 and 60 doctors a year. That is not enough. And we've turned out, we've got about 200 advocates and we've got another cohort starting there. That is not enough for this demand. So literally people are dying in waiting rooms everywhere, trying to get a metabolic approach to their, to their cancer. And so I really need your listeners to like, know that there's so much more and only they can change it because that's the changes I've seen in medicine in the last 10 years was not what I know, what I've learned or what the research shows. No one seems to care about that. No, it's patient driven. It's patient experience driven. And you are a perfect example of that. You 
getting out there and advocating for your mother. And this gentleman that you, you know, just shared the story with her earlier, and you said many, many more stories, very similar. And so we have to, we have to demand better care. We have yeah, to. we do. And, and you know, I'm like, I, I didn't really want to be working in the cancer field, to be fair. And, you know, like, I mean, you like, are. <laughs> but they just keep coming, you know, oh, and, I, and I keep yeah. learning and I keep connecting to people like yourself and um, just doing the best I can to connect them yeah. to the right doctors, the right people, and to help them navigate that process. <laughs> and I'm like, can I not leave this behind now? It's history. I don't want to be dealing with cancer on it. Daily basis, but it's desperately needed, and you know I'm I'm super keen to do the, the the advocate training with you, and it's just a matter of bandwidth, when and how. But um, I've learned already so much from you. Now I want to I want to sort of switch gears and go into a little bit of the biochemistry and the stuff that's going on. And the, Gosh, you need you my know. husband in the room for that one, but I'll do my best. Oh, do- I need him on the show too because yeah, <laughs> you I've heard do. you say that before on my friend Ben Azadi's show. I've heard you a couple oh, of times, yeah. and yeah, I'm yeah. just like yeah. Um, Fantastic. So, so many people, let's start at the place where, why, um, so, so many people nowadays are metabolically broken. They're unable to go for a few hours without food. And we have this, um, you know, there's the emotional side of eating and then there's the physical craving side of eating and there's the the imbalance of blood sugars. Can you just start at that point? Because we're talking about the metabolic approach to cancer and most people, um, whether they've got cancer or not cancer, are metabolically broken on some level. Sure. So uh, a North Carolina Chapel Hill study came out in 2018 that showed, and this is based on America, but I'm telling you, if you're in a developed nation, this is true for you too. Okay. So in the US, they were able to show that only 12%, this is in 2018, 12% of Americans were considered metabolically healthy. So a quick rundown of what they defined as metabolic health, a hip to waist ratio. So you need to have skinnier waist than hips. Okay. You needed to have a blood pressure a normal blood pressure, 120 over 80. You needed to have a normal blood sugar for them under 100. That's not quite normal, but that's all right. You need to have energy, so vitality, and you need to have good um, uh, like muscle strength. You've got to be able to like do sit, stand, test, things like that. Only 12% of people can achieve that. And by the way, all of those things have to be achieved without pharmaceutical intervention. Wow. So yeah, we can get people's blood pressure down under, but yeah, two pharmaceuticals and we get their blood sugars down with this pharmaceutical and we can get their, you know, whatever their testosterone they're taking for their muscle, like all that stuff. Like that's medically, you know, re- re- that's not you, that's your drugs doing that. Right. And so, and those then will lead to more problems by the way, um, without fail, um, as they always do. Um, but that's where it is. So fast forward, July, 2022, a new study came out by the Academy of um, Cardiology that showed, oh gosh, we went back to the drawing where we just kind of took another um, expl- uh, deep dive into this. And guess what? We're down to 6.8. Wow. Are actually metabolically healthy. One no and- 10 year olds, probably 20 year olds. Yeah, and that's, and well, and this is the crazy thing. And that's in a short period of time after a worldwide pandemic where instead of everyone taking advantage of being at home, they all sat on their asses and ate dryers, ice cream, for two years and added to the, like, it's just everyone. It's like the, the stress of it all, the, oh. the lack of community of it, all the things drove everyone into self-soothing with their, with things that took them further from metabolic health. And so now we're looking at less than 92 
or that more than 92% of us are metabolically broken. So what that means with regards to what you were, you know, like kind of getting at is metabolically broken shows up as things like diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, obesity, um, uh, and, you know, like, I mean, all of the brain, like neurological things, cancer, they're all the same. They all are down at that metabolic dysfunctional mitochondrial level. Every one of them, it's the common denominator. Autism falls in that category as well. Chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. So if you have one of those labels, you're already considered metabolically broken. If you don't have those labels yet, but you suspect that you have them and you're not on those pharmaceuticals yet, you know, great, but you're a, you're a dying breed. If you're 6.8% out there considered healthy and it takes work to stay there on the planet today, because we're being hit, our mitochondria are being hit left and right with generational things that have come through us with dietary lifestyle changes that have happened. We taken about five, you know, we went from five pounds of sugar per person per year in the 1850s to depending on studies, 145 to 170 pounds, right? Yeah, exactly. My sentiments, exactly. And that, how can we possibly adapt in that short of time? Yeah. And then our food, like then it's like 1960, we brought in the high fructose corn movement. We then got everyone terrified of fat in the 1970s. Yeah. And when you take out fat, you got to put flavor in and it's sugar, baby. Yeah. We turn ourselves into a bunch of, you know, sugar is impacting the same dopamine pathways as cocaine. Yeah. So we're all a bunch of cokeheads, right? Yeah. We're all addicted to sugar. And everyone who, when we even talk low carb today, I laugh because the idea of low carb, even what we consider low carb is not low carb in any of the clinical studies, by the way, none. So they're like, oh, low carb diet doesn't work. We did some studies on it. And you're like, well, first of all, that was not a low carb study. So there's even the misunderstanding there that really, even the RDA nutritionists say that we should not have more than a hundred grams of carbohydrate a day in healthy men and women. That's, that's, no, this is an RDA. That's not a therapeutic nutritionist. And that's still far too much. Yes. But even say for a woman, she should not have of that hundred grams of carbohydrate. She should not have more than 20 of that being sugar. The rest should be fiber. And then for men, 25 grams of that should not be, you know, it should be sugar and not fiber or, and, you know, and the other amount fiber. And so just so folks get really clear here, people are eating three days worth of sugar just at breakfast. Yeah. You get your your standard cereal out of the packet. Or their their healthy oats, their oatmeal, their muesli, like the vast universe. Exactly. (laughs) Eating dried fruit, low fat milk, having their orange juice with their bananas or dry. It is like sugar on sugar on sugar. Mm. And this is where, so that happens. And then we've screwed up our, our environment terribly. Again, these are relatively new things in just a short few centuries we have done done terrible things to this planet, which then translates into terrible things to us and our food sources, our water sources, our air, our soil. And then it's in fact impacted our microbiome. I mean, my gosh, we, as naturopaths have talked about the microbiome, the importance of it for years, and literally we're poo-pooed. I mean that pun intentionally (laughs) about that. And now we spend gajillions of dollars and people spend lots of money to eat someone else's poop in a capsule. Like this is what we've come to. Instead of cleaning up your own terrain, you're willing to spend the money go through a clinical trial to eat somebody else's poop, but they can't even find healthy poop anymore. Like the studies are having difficulties finding good fecal transplant matter because no one's healthy. 
So that's like these things and hormonal imbalance because we're swimming in a swimming pool of endocrine disruption of xenoestrogens. No one is, is hormone deficient. We're all hormone malfunctioning and malprocessing and mal, um, uh, you know, utilizing and clearing it through the system. So there's just example. And then the concept of mind, body, spirit, we talked about early on here. All of these things are like the drop in the mitochondrial bucket that add up and accumulate. And we all have a different threshold, but we're all heading down a metabolic broken path unless we do very thoughtful, very focused changes. Like one of my biggest pet peeves is the word pre-diabetes. It is, it is. What it is? It's already diabetes. literally, yeah, no different than sort of pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you are either diabetic or you're not. There is no pre because we're all pre. We all live in pre-diabetes today, right? Yeah. And so by the time you're A1C, gets like we want it in our world under five. Like that's where everyone should be you know, maybe you can get away as younger growing up, like when you're burning, you're like, you're more fit, you're more active, uh, right? Five, five, two, five, three, 5.3. Once you start to get above that, you are already browning your innards. You are already oxidizing. You're already aging your tissues, right? So I keep mine like mine. I just got my back of September. It's 4.8. I don't even Mm -hmm. like try anymore. It's like so locked in there. I have to try. It's been like that forever. When I started, it was 6.3. Wow. And so you're considered diabetic when it's at 5.7 or they start to call it pre-diabetic then. But in my world, you're already, you already have all of the metabolic conditioning that fits that category of who's metabolically broken. And And insulin resistance, that whole sort of, you know, um, the insulins is going. You're nailing it. And so this is what we're faced with. So yes, you and I might be talking about cancer, but we could very well be talking about autism or brain aneurysms or, you know, susceptibility to COVID infections or, um, you know, diabetes. We could be talking about any one of those and it's the exact same conversation. Just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.lisatarmaty.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot lisatarmaty.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month, New Zealand, or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So we we are grateful if you do. There are so many member benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatamati.com and thanks very much for joining us. Yeah. 
It is at the root cause. Let's go back to the some of the things, which is, you know, this is where the fasting, the yeah. the changing of the diet, and these are not sexy topics. Like they are hard sells, right? Because we are, like as you said, dopamine brains. We're all running around like little coke heads because we've trained it. And I've struggled with this too. You know, I'm not I'm not coming from a place of judgment because freaking hell, it's hard to fight against your evolutionary self, which yes had a lack of food in the environment, so we had to go hunting. So we had these drivers to go and search for fat and for sugar and for things in the, our environment. We're fighting that. At the same time, we've got a McDonald's and KFC on every street corner, and this is tempting, and this is smells good, and this lights and up all those cues from all your, oh. you know, yeah, so, yeah, we we are, you know, it is difficult for us to overcome all of those problems, but there's a place where we can start and we don't have to go, you know, starting at a 10-day fast, you know, it, we can start with can we get through 12 hours, 13 yes. hours without eating, you know? Yeah, and I love that you said that because anything helps. So literally there was a great study out of MD Anderson that took, I don't know, 44,000 women, some large number of women post breast cancer diagnosis. And they basically said to one group, you eat as, you know, like you just don't, doesn't even, we don't even care what you're eating. Just this group eats as much as they want all around the clock. And this group do not eat, you know, at least, at least keep a 13 hour fasting window. They went and compared that data over many years. And what they found is those that simply fasted 13 hours, this is from dinner till breakfast with no snacking, nothing but water, right? Basically at like to finish at 6 p.m. and not break the fast till 7 a.m. Just those, that group alone lowered their risk of recurrence by 70%. Wow. They could have been eating Twinkies all day long. <laughs> you know, we don't have that data. Like yeah, no one said, you what are you eating? They're just like the time. So that's what I think is so compelling. I just heard Sachin Panda speak at another conference. I've heard him many times. It's, I mean, yes, food quality is very important. I want to reiterate that. Yeah. And, and the, those are so key. But my gosh, the timing of it may be even more, if, you know, if not the same importance, it could even be more important is what the studies are showing. And so this place where we're tapping into our melatonin areas. So there's actually a, an epigenetic hiccup, a melatonin snip. I think it's M-E-L-T-N-1-B, I believe. Mm-hmm. Be wrong. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw this noggin works. Yeah. But basically, you have that epigenetic hiccup. And you basically eat when the sun is down. You basically are heading to diabetes bill. Wow. So it's like so related, our melatonin relationship to even our glucose insulin balance. And how many of us are grazers, late night eaters, get up in the middle of the night, have to have a snack before we go to bed, having a snack at night in front of the TV where you're getting the blue light to boot in the <laughs> melatonin disruption. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And so simple things of like, you know, my house looks like the red light district in the evenings. Yeah, it's fabulous in red, right? So it's really good for that. So like turn all of the lighting on. If you're going to have screen time, wear your ridiculous glasses, you know, yep. have, it may not have the, the image you normally like to see, but if you're going to watch your movies, watch them in the daytime, you know, um, if you don't mind the red light at night, go ahead and watch it then. But you're trying to start to reset a rhythm that has been part of us since the beginning of evolution. Oh, you're we preaching what I'm preaching. Right? Yeah. yeah, we live and die by firelight. Yes. The light bulb, the incandescent light bulb is what, a hundred and some years, like just barely in a matter of a handful, like two generations, we've disrupted everything. 
Yeah. And so then we add our late night grazing. We have the access 24 seven to food all over the, I can eat a papaya in Durango, Colorado in the winter. You know, it's like the things we can access now, never in human history. So we have to go back to some very basic fundamental ancestral rebooting, getting like back out doors, getting your light um, filtered in the indoor space, watching the times you eat, watching when you sleep, making sure you start to download your brain hours before you actually try to go to bed, making sure your sleeping space is in complete darkness and much cooler than your daytime temperatures in there. Things like that are so integral. Every single cell in the body is listening and taking cues and they all start to harmonize in that rhythm in that place. And that costs nothing. What I just described is free. You can't make money out of it. (laughs) I mean, and that's even why Dr. Longo, like I can remember the first time he spoke well before Prolon fasting mimicking came to be Yep, literally stood up in front of the group and said, my research won't go anywhere unless I have a product to go with it. It was very straightforward. And he's like, really water is best, but if you have to have something, a little bone broth and maybe um, like homemade bone broth and maybe like some kale chips, like, like he was super like, here's how you do it. What? Two years later, he's got these packets that are nothing about those packets are real food really um, are healthy. They're super high carbohydrate. So it throws any of my folks who are trying to maintain ketosis out of ketosis wow, it's really? because it's helping people fast, but it's not keeping them in a ketotic state because there's enough carbs in there to override that. Oh, wow. So I know, but it's a nice crutch. It's a nice starting point for people to morph into the next phase. So it's like the, it's the bridge that takes them to the next step of, Hey, after you pay $250 a month for that a few times, and maybe you'll be like, maybe I'll just try it with just my own bone broth next time. Maybe I don't even need the bone broth next time. And suddenly you're at the place where you're like, I can comfortably safely water fast for anywhere from, you know, 16 hours to five days, whatever that may be. Um, And then they're, they're like suddenly empowered to realize they're resetting so many internal systems, so many things happening that they have a much wider resistance and resilience happening within their body and being. And the, the mental clarity that comes with that is just ginormous. And when you like, I mean, I talk about intermittent fasting a lot on the show and, and um, the power and, and, you know, the autophagy and getting rid of the senescent cells, but on the cancer front, why does fasting work? And when you, you know, the argument that you get from your standard oncologist is this patient, especially if a patient is underweight or they're they're losing weight because of cancer, right? Which is sucking the living daylights out of their energy systems and their logic, which, you know, from the outside to be fair, makes sense you know every time I go to the oncologist they still tell me on the way out Isabel they say to my mum eat your pudding you know we don't want you getting to it and I'm like and therein lies the problem mum you're not getting pudding on the way and she would be like oh am I gonna get a pudding and I'm like no everyone's gonna want to reach on that and here's where it starts like that right there so this process that they're concerned of happening is something called cachexia yeah right it's also known as metabolic wasting and it's in it's related to another um, muscle wasting called sarcopenia. Yeah, but cachexia is very specific to the cancer world, um, and all of these sarcopenia, muscle wasting, and cachexia are not responsive to calories. I mean, it is a you still to die. <laughs> yeah, it is a metabolic shift, and here are the two things that drive cachexia: two things and two things only. Inflammation and insulin resistance. Wow. 
Okay. And what do we load these people up with? Inflammatory, sugar dense, fake beverages. Yeah. And we're telling them to eat their pudding. We're telling them the, the American Cancer Society booklet has like angel food cake and go get a Dairy Queen blizzard. And I'm like, God, like seriously. I mean, at the pediatric oncology conference I went to, they were feeding these kids donuts. Oh my God. Teasing. Like we've known since the 1920s, the best way to treat seizures is a therapeutic ketogenic diet. And these kids are like have six to nine months with treatment at best to live. And they're shoving their faces full of donuts and seizing in front of me. Like literally there were two different episodes of somebody having a seizure as their blood sugars went crazy. And I'm thinking, this is child abuse. You're you're, you're, like, it's child abuse because we know we can make, there's, you can make keto donuts. You can make keto pudding. You can make, you can make low carb versions of your favorite foods. Like you do not have to live without, um, you know, to, you know, you can still bring that memory and that, that celebratory and that human connection part of food into your world. You just have to repurpose it. Those are the big things here. But with cachexia, with that wasting process, no amount of calories will take care of this. And the more you give it calories that are high in carbohydrate calories, you will actually drive it worse. And we will do so by also driving up the inflammation. And so you have to hit those head on. And there's just nothing really in standard of care that does that. Um, The other piece is that 50 to 70%, depending on the studies you look at, of patients who die from cancer are actually dying from cachexia. Yeah, they're so actually from the weight loss. Right. And yeah. the weight loss, it's a weight loss that is, it's the 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 cancer has now, it's, it's a sociopath. Cancer is a sociopath that does not care that it's going to kill itself as it kills its host. So it's going to steal and rob all of the resources that are coming in. It cannot utilize fats now, and I'm saying dietary fats, because there's yep. another system happening biochemically, which we do not have time to go into here today, because when people say, oh, but ketones can do that, like it really can't like in cell line studies and in Petri dishes. Yes. But clinically what we see and what we're testing for, what we're looking at is I'm monitoring these patients very rigorously every single month is no, no cancer cannot basically use those ketones to, to fuel itself. So you can nourish the rest of the body around it, fortify the rest of the body around it. And then the cancer is basically held off at the past. Now you need to do other things simultaneously, not a single diet or a single intervention will ever be enough, especially at that phase. But I want people to understand the power of even this one tool can help Mm. even fasting someone in a severe cachectic state is often more helpful than giving them an insure or a boost shake. Oh God, you and, 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 and 20, 26 days without food. Wow. Back then this when you were sick, because yeah. you couldn't actually yeah. eat. So that actually yeah. what saved yeah. your life in, in the yeah. end or oh, the, yeah. the beginning yeah. of your journey back. And I was, I looked like a walking skeleton with yeah. a big belly because it was still the flu, but the fluid started to absorb over time. The inflammation started coming down. And then after 26 days, I could have small sips of broth and I could have small sips of, of, I didn't know better then. I would have totally not done this now, but juice. I was juicing my things where it was just too much sugar. I learned that now, but I could do herbal teas. So I could start to sip fluids. And then after another month, I was able to bring in a little bit more softer foods and little bits is that the tube started to slowly open up again. I did not die. Yeah. Um, 31 years later, I'm here in front of you with that. And so I've watched and helped hundreds, if not thousands of patients go through this journey, but it's under medical care and medical supervision. So I don't want anyone to think they can just go out there and do it alone, but 
there really is so much misinformation. Your physicians have not had good training. And so your questions I have people ask are, you know, their oncologists or their nutritionists is, have you had um, nutrition training? Okay, great. Tell me when, where, what kind, you know, like how many hours, you know, if they tell you, oh, I had a two hour weekend course, that's not going to do. I had 80 <laughs> hours in medical school and had to learn a lot beyond that. Right. Um, and then when, then you start to ask them, like, how do you take care of my terrain? If they look at you with their eyes crossed, then you know that they have no clue. You ask them, how do you take care of my um, my metabolic health and my and how do you prevent those stem cells from going crazy? Exactly. Um, with this? How do you do that? And if you start to ask questions like that and they can't answer them, you know that they have stayed in a tiny little myopic bubble of focusing just on your tumor or your tumor type, and they don't they're not even listening to the research that's happening around them. And so you want in the front of my book, I have like ten questions to ask your oncologist. Take that with you. Interview them. You're, they're, 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 you're, they're, they're, they're interviewing for a job with you. Exactly. Right? And you have this lovely download on your website, actually, at drwinters.com. Um, was it nashawinters.com? Uh, or Dr. Dr. Uh, Nasha, drnasha.com. Yeah, okay. D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. Okay. <laughs> and there's a lovely download on there that is, um, and I've been passing that on to my clients, uh, five days, um, what they should be doing, with the five steps, the five yeah. steps process. And that was like super helpful because it just, just okay, focus on this, breathe. <laughs> You've just yeah. had a cancer diagnosis. Um, do this, do this, do this. And there were just some first steps to get you going and to think and to, to think critically about this. And, you know, going back to the ketone story, because, you know, um, I've done a lot of research in this area and I'm like, um, I've been looking at the Nori protocol with the lomothionine, looking at the keto, uh, yeah. looking at Jane McClellan's work, your work. And I'm like, oh, a little bit confused now, to be honest. A lot of it confused. Yeah. So- so, so I've had mum on yeah. a keto diet for an yeah. entire year and obviously we're winning the with the, the yeah. battle. Well, My concern well, is that do I need yeah. to now go low methionine diet or you know so, it's easy. This is an easy answer. A lot of those those you know folks, like I know I know the Nori folks, I know Jane, I know all of this this tribe here. There there's a lot of really interesting ways you can approach this, right? But it has to be applied to the patient at the right time. And it has to be that the patient's body is requesting it. So if your mom's homocysteine is normal then a low methionine diet is not only in a, not inappropriate, not appropriate, it could actually be harmful. Right. If you're, okay. if you're looking at like metformin or the COC protocol, for instance, but yeah. your IGF is fine. That's probably not an issue for Like there's different things that we test, we call them onboarding tests. We run a ton of tests. So we know exactly what we're dealing with. We're looking at ferritin, like, Hey, could ferroptosis be an option of yeah. a, a place to a, a, approach here? What is very scary and very dangerous are all the people going out and just doing these protocols without looking under the hood to see if they're even appropriate for them. I will tell you right now, someone who puts himself in a methionine restricted diet, which this is what's crazy. When you look at any amino acid restricting diet and even the amino acid researchers like um, Nell Syed out of UK and D'Agostino out of Florida and Seafried and all these guys that are like, oh, you got to starve arginine. You got to starve glutamine. You got to yeah. starve. They will all tell you, you cannot do it with food. You cannot amino acid deplete with food because your body, those are essential amino acids. Your body will then find its own resources. It will then break down. mm -hmm, It will start to break down your muscles, your immune cells. 
Yes, and this is like this is a dilemma that I've had with things like arginine, glutamine, uh, methionine. So you have to know where the patient is. If someone's LDH, lactase dehydrogenase, is normal or in a good place, then they're probably not going crazy on glutamine. Like glutamine is probably not an issue for them, right? If their homocysteine is normal, methionine is not an issue. If their if their ferritin storage is normal, not a ferroptosis candidate. Like it's that stinking simple. We know exactly what to do, when, why, and how, when to incorporate things. But even the bummer of like, nor, and I really, I think he's brilliant. I think his thought process is brilliant, but even those who understand methionine restriction on this level, you cannot do it with fruit because no matter what, across the board, all the patients have to stay carb restricted. That is 90% of all cancers are strongly metabolic, meaning strongly psychotic, meaning strongly sugar. Even when you know, hey, maybe maybe you don't need to be in a therapeutic keto- ketosis, but you have to remember there are many roads to, to ketosis. You can get there with a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. You can get there with a carnivore diet. You can get there with a vegan diet. You can get there with fasting. You can get there with exogenous ketones. There are multiple ways to get there. You can get there with time-restricted eating, right? Ketones are going to happen naturally, folks. We have that as a natural built-in system. You should naturally be showing ketones if you're metabolically flexible after 13-hour fast. So no, ketones are not the problem. Okay, yeah, Exogenous okay. ketones are okay to put in the mix because that, that's oh, been another I, debate. I use, them, I, I use them right before radiation. I use them right before high, dose, um, high doses of IDC or mistletoe or oh. hyperthermia therapy. I use them to kind of potentiate and add another level of stress to the, to the cancer cells so that it's more um, vulnerable to whatever other treatments we're bringing on board. Wow. But even like the brilliant researchers like Osaka Ahmed, um, um, Dr. Ahmed Osaka, excuse me, um, he like, he's really down on the, on the Nori protocol because it's all sugar. And so he's like, you can do a methionine, a low carbohydrate methionine restriction, but you have to test the homocysteine every 10 to 14 days. And the second the homocysteine normalizes, you have to slowly wean that patient back onto a therapeutic ketogenic diet where the patient is going to have problems. And that's done in a hospital research oncology environment, not out of a cracker box on the street of someone running off and doing this by themselves. So I get a bit passionate about this because I'm the person who gets hundreds of people who've gone out and done this on their own. And here's the piece I want to say. I applaud everyone who did that because I wouldn't be here if I hadn't started with that. Mm. But please know there are people you need to test. The beauty of my diagnosis is I worked in a clinic in undergrad. So I was getting my labs tested. When I started med school, I was testing my bloods every single month. You know, now I just test them once a year because that's the stage I'm at, but I use data to drive my process. It was never guessing work. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Because if you think you're fine, I mean, everyone tells me they were healthy until they got cancer. So yeah. No. You're not <laughs> in, right guys. So come on. Right. Yeah. So we have to, when we look at some of these more, you know, metabolic blockade therapies, you have to see if the patient even needs it, if it fits their tissue assay type, their tumor type, or their blood type, like their what's in circulation, or just their natural epigenetic expression, we can assess all of that and then layer in a very precise piece. So the, the story cool. here is precise precision metabolic oncology. And this is a problem is, is that so many people do not have access to you and your team. And, yeah. um, 
you know, like you, there's people like me who are trying to help navigate and get people under the right doctors and, you know, we need to have a conversation about that, you know, getting my patients and my mum <laughs> under you guys because it's the next level. So I can be working with an integrated oncologist, but they may not have the nuance of information. Like, I, like um, you know, mum's home assisting level, for example, went up after the last chemo that we had in the in the in the mix um we had temozolomide and it's not a you know mm-hmm. clinical thing about here but uh immediately i did pull back on uh well up to methylation and um i know her genetics um i don't know i, I you know i study epigenetics and dna so i i know most of her genetics i don't know yeah. melatonin one that was a new one on me um yeah. and but there's 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 lay there's there's pieces still missing in the information, and the hard thing is for someone like me who's just gone and studied everything they can possibly find, you get these contradictions, right? And you're trying desperately to work it out, and you've got a great team of people, but they don't always agree. And this is one of the things where with with the people that I'm working with, I'm going, okay, let's bring in all the data, let's bring it all in, and let's try and work it out ourselves, you know, because unfortunately we don't all have access to you um, and we we have to work it out ourselves because there's millions of people out there that are in this situation and not everybody can ring you on the phone. And <laughs> how's my place? Well, and back to the, like, homocysteine thing, for instance. So, most patients are going to have elevated homocysteines at some point because they're on there, especially like on, for let's say lymphoma, they typically end up on a CHOP or a CHOP-R formula, which is going to contain some antifolate therapeutic intervention. So that means that they're going to be dropping their folate and their B12 status, which is going to push their homocysteine up. Nobody tells you, by the way. Right, which is ridiculous. So you know you have to like support them in other ways, but even you have to be careful with which ones you support them with because some could actually feed the cancer. So you have to be, this is why you do not go with this alone. So then when you have something like that and you see the homocysteine, and you have to determine, is that homocysteine up because it's a secondary component of their treatment? Is the homocysteine up because they have a lot of epi, you know, SNPs with MTHFR, MTRR, TNF-alpha, you know, TNFR, any of those things? Or is it up because it's another driver of their cancer? So at that point, when we see the high homocysteine, we put them on six days of a high methyl support protocol. Mm-hmm. So like yep. blast them with all of the methyl support nutrients for six days, retest the homocysteine. If it came down, you know that this patient is just dealing with side effects of treatment or that they already have some SNPs that made them have a propensity to this. They are not a candidate for a methionine restricted diet. Well, if it does not budge, then they are. Then you work that pulse that, and there's a way you build the system. You basically charge the system before you do that diet. And then you watch that homocysteine carefully, and then you um, wean them back into normal diet, low carb, you know, low carb carb diet. But, but maybe into ketosis again, once it stabilizes and keep testing, because that's how it's done. So it's nuanced. So people have to be aware of that, that you have, you've got to be very careful. So ironic, everyone's like jumping out and putting themselves on metformin. Well, everyone's homocysteines are shooting way up. Everyone's B12 is going out. Everyone's having problems methylating. And now they're driving the cancer in another way. And even Jane does a beautiful job talking about in the book. It's like, if you just come in and block and block them, like you're whack a mole everything. It's like block this pathway, this goes. So in her strategy, it's like hit it all. Well, that's a strategy, but because those drugs do have their inherent toxicity, you can also get very, very individualized and test assess and not guess, and they get very specific. 
and very thoughtful on it because there's a lot of epigenetic hiccups out there where many drugs like statins, if you've got a CoQ2, please don't take a statin. If you've got a CYP9R3, please don't take metformin. If you've got CYP2D6, you're probably not a good candidate for tamoxifen. Like we have pharmacogenomics to know what drug. So off-label, full-label, I don't give a shit. You've got to know if it's going to work well in your body. And you're the first person that said any of those snips to me. They're all new to me. And that scares the living bejeebas out of me because it's like, okay, that, like I've had mum on metformin. I've had her on uh, statins. We've now lowered the statins because we're trying to block the, you know, the fatty acid synthesis pathways. We're trying to, the strep, whatever you call them, be... You know, she's got, so you, here's the thing is you're going at it from all those paths, which is great, but you can do, you can go in and look at more detail with her. She's a woman with lymphoma of her age. This is sort of classic elderly lymphoma, the timing of it. And so when you see that there's a, there's a lot of different reasons for this, but lymphomas and leukemias are pretty much hundred percent metabolic. Like they don't really eat on the other stuff. So you're probably just doing great just by keeping her in ketosis and supporting her. An 80 something year old person with lymphoma, honestly, in my practice, a ketogenic diet and mistletoe has done the trick like over and over and over and over and over again. Helixor has her entire like protocol for, for people with lymphoma. Like it's so well, uh, uh, um, Supported fundamental, simple therapeutic interventions. Again, we look at the whole terrain. You know, we don't just throw out a protocol and say, that's what she needs. We had to look at the whole piece here. But my hope is this conversation is getting people curious if they need to not follow somebody else's journey. You want to applaud it. You want to celebrate everyone's amazing outcomes of the journey they took. But even Jane will tell you, and I'll tell you, like, it did not come easy. It did not come fast. We learned it overnight and we learned it for ourselves. And we were literally building the airplane while we were flying it yeah. in our situations. And so we both have the wherewithal. And I know Jane well enough to know that she brings on all the things in her lifestyle and her, that, and she, you can't write about that in the type of book, like you can't. And so people just go and read a page and they rip out that page. Like I'm going to do this and I'm going to expect something miraculous. Well, in the bell-shaped curve of life, there will be those who fall into that state of miraculous. And then there will be the outliers, which is the vast majority of us. That's true in standard of care as well, right? This is how it's done. So how we can make integrative medicine, make standard of care, and even the off-label or repurposed drug world work better is true precision medicine. True precision medicine, because we call it lip service, like precision medicine, oh, we'll go get your tissue assayed, and then we'll tell you what targets, and then we'll use the three or four drugs we have for those targets, and we'll call it good. That's precision medicine. No, that's bullshit. That's not even close to precision medicine. Precision medicine is helping me know what drops are in her mitochondrial bucket, knowing the zip code where she spent the majority of her life, knowing the life chronology of events that happened that led up to her cancer diagnosis, knowing the treatments that she's been through before that may have made her more vulnerable. Just the fact that some things have happened in your mom's brain on at least two occasions here tells me something major has been missed here and ignored that needs to be addressed because this poor noggin of hers is like just this vulnerable little, you know, environment that needs that support. And then we can look at the labs and then we can look at the epigenetics and then we can look at the tissue genomics and then we can put it all together and devise the end of one of her and be able to watch it closely and carefully every single month and watch it improve. This is what we're training our physicians. We're even training, training our advocates. We need more of this. It takes a lot of time. We're even putting into a database so we can help it be um, scalable because it takes me an average of seven, eight hours just to prepare for a single case. Exactly. 
that's not going to sustain for anybody. And so the way we're working at doing this is, is we've got a lot of working parts. We're building our network, we're building the database, and we're building the hospital, the training grounds, and the research institute that's a nonprofit that is available to all, and we hope will be a model to have these institutes all over the world. So this is may not all happen in my lifetime. I certainly hope I get to see at least a few of them come to fruition, but it's not just me. It cannot be just on my shoulders to do this. No. Or the 100 doctors who signed up or the 200 advocates who signed up, this is going to take millions of us to change this. And so if nothing I said today does anything but just say, hey, I'm curious of how I can help change this narrative because folks... We are not improving upon this. Do not read the headlines to believe that somehow we're winning the war on cancer. We are nowhere near it. Yeah. World Health Organization says our cancer rates will double by 2030. Yeah. And it's not slowing down. We, our medical systems are being crushed. Our medical care, the burnout of oncologists is unbelievable. And this is why we have out of our 120, like 30 oncologists in our training because wow. they're like, I know we can do more. And then they can't go back into their old world. They thought, oh, I'm just learning my patient. And they're like, oh, crap. And they didn't sign up. They didn't know they were signing up for that. So if, if you're an oncologist and you're scared to hear that, I'll, I'll hook you up with some of the others in the group. So you know how yeah. they transitioned. But man almighty, this is what it's going to take, Lisa. And it's you, your work, your end of one experience, those that you touch, those that are listening, your network, you know, Maddie's who introduced it, like all these circles, we're finding each other. Yeah. I feel hopeful for the first time in my 31 years of these last couple of years. I feel hope, hope, hope. Yeah. Started this conversation that we may actually change things. Yeah. And because we're doing this sort of thing, we're getting it out to the actual people who are, who need it in a, in a, you know, one at a time, basically. And then they're spreading that, that, that message and that news. And, you know, we just desperately need to get so many more people trained. And, um, for, uh, you know, after listening to this again, I'm like, freaking it, I have to find a way to do the terrain advocacy program because, you know, this, even though <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> cap how many <laughs> I'm working with on, on that sort of really uh, intense level because, as you know, it sucks the living daylights out of you and every hour that you spend in consult, there's seven or eight hours of research and testing and things that go in behind it, which people don't see. They just see what you charge per hour and think, right. well, that's yeah. expensive. Right. And you're like, yeah. eh. <laughs> well, I, wait, I still need more waiting tables, folks, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's okay because this is what I came here to do, right? This is a labor of love. Yeah, it is. This is an absolute labor of love. There is no way I could have been handed, you know, dealt the deck of cards I was dealt to waste it. Exactly. No way. And like you with your mom, like there's no way you had one miracle with her to then say, well, why not another? Yeah, exactly. We're going to expect miracles. And there is nothing wrong with hope. I mean, even the Dalai Lama said, you know, somebody asked him when, I mean, his entire world has been decimated you know, by the Chinese government. And he's like, people are like, how do you remain hope with hope with all of this? And he's like, without hope, what is there? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like, exactly. we have to, like, you can be, you can have hope and heal into dying. We somehow think of death as a failure. It's just on to the next big adventure. It's just how you move towards your death. We're all doing it. Yeah. That can like frame the experience and the touch of the, of the mass that it touches in others. I mean, 
Oh, it's huge. And you've, 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 I listened to you on, I think it was Ben's show or somewhere, um, Ben Pekulski or Ben Mazzari's, one of those Ben's. <laughs> um, and you were talking about your first experience uh, when you were in a nursing home and being there when your first person passed in front yeah. of you. And I cried when I heard that story. Um, it, do you mind sharing that little anecdote? Yeah. I had had, um, so when I was five, I lost my grandfather and death was terrifying to me. I had nightmares. I was kind of mentally ill, like really lost my poo. In eighth grade, my best friend died of an aneurysm and it was incredibly traumatic. And I was just like, so terrified of death and people dying and my own death. I was obsessed. So it's kind of ironic. (laughs) I was given a death sentence. Yeah. Um, and so fast forward before the um, year before my diagnosis, I worked in a nursing home and I worked as a CNA. I was a certified nursing assistant. And part of our training was post-mortem care. And I was like, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God. Like, I did not want to have to ever do that. Like, I, I prayed for it. But yeah. it was one of my first few weeks on the job that it had a massive stroke. And she had been in basically, she was very comfortable. She was in a coma. Her family was from that area. Um, you know, so she's well known, but no one came to visit her. Like I was really sad by that. And so one night getting ready for dinner, it was in the fall. So the nights were getting, you know, it was getting darker um, earlier. And so it was dinner time. And I went to check on her as I was getting everybody else ready for dinner. And I noticed that something changed in the room. And I checked in our periodically, but something was different. And I walked up closer because there was just enough light coming in still that her, I realized her eyes were wide open. So I'd only seen this person in kind of a coma state. So I'm like, Oh God, what's happening? You know, like, Oh geez. And, and I just sat down next to her and just put my hand on her chest and she grabbed my hand with her hand and just kind of squeezed and just kind of head still straight up, looked at me kind of by the side, these unbelievable piercing blue eyes, the most clear blue eyes I've ever seen. And then she looked back up and she just got this big smile on her face. And literally just as the darkness really seeped into the room, I saw this little light leave from her chest and work its way up. I still, I get chill. I can never tell the story without getting chills and emotional. Go and I'm holding her hand, and the room totally changed again. And I'm just sitting there in the dark with her. And this nurse walks by, the head nurse who actually just passed away about two years ago from cancer. Um, walked by and stood at the door, and she goes, "Is she gone?" And I said, "I, I think so." And she said, "Did you see the light leave her body?" I about shit my pants. <laughs> I thought I was hallucinating. Yeah. And it was so she was so like matter of fact about it. And she's like very sweet, isn't it? And that's where it was this moment where I had built up what death would be for so much. And from that point in my practice, I became I became a I became known as, I mean, years later when I was back in med, in, in medical practice, you know, so this is many years after this, seven, eight years later, I um do led 36 people out of this world. Yeah. And it was the moment because I thought it was going to be a midwife at first because I wasn't going to do cancer. I wasn't going to do, I was going to stay away from that. So I was like, I'm going to deliver babies. And then I realized they don't sleep. They come at weird hours, <laughs> but I delivered 36 babies before I made that decision. And I can remember the night when I hit that window of balance where I had brought 36 beings into this world. I'd ushered 36 beings this world and I'd ushered 36 people out of this world. And it was just this other miraculous opening for me that this is the most beautiful cycle and the most honorable, amazing adventure coming in and out of this world we can possibly imagine. And how sad that most of us lose the uh, opportunity to experience it as such, either of those experiences as such. And so it really changed and reframed so, so much for me. And that, um, 
I just, I don't fear death at all. And, wow. and I don't even fear like even people that I know, I mean, I have so many meaningful conversations with people at their end and um, it, it's incredible for them to, as we distill down into our true essence, if you're given that ability, that opportunity to look at it in a different way, um, it can be the biggest adventure and the biggest victory of your life. Yeah. And so it's, it's just, we just have such a strange. We, we're frightened. We're frightened of the unknown. Yeah, we are. We are. And I, 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 you know, I, when I hear that friends or colleagues or patients have been with a loved one as they passed or been with a loved one as they delivered, you know, like you, it changes you, it changes you to be in that presence. And, and, um, you know, especially, and it changes you, the more the person that's in the experience is surrendering to it, the more potent and powerful the process. It's quite exquisite. Well, you know, that's beautiful, but, you know, and something that, that um, you know, speaks to me, I lost my dad two years ago and it wasn't under the best of circumstances. And uh, once again, in the, we were in the ICU, he had sepsis after an aortic aneurysm and an operation, and I was fighting to get him intravenous vitamin C and I fought and I fought because I knew the research yeah. and my listeners have heard me tell the story, but it was 15 days of fighting, fighting the system and uh, this, you know, uh, ethics committee um i want to spit the word out um <laughs> and they would not at end of life when they had nothing else to offer me would not let me do intravenous vitamin c despite the research and i came with a you know professors on my side and i had people you know presenting the evidence with me and the doctors said we just don't care about the evidence this is a legal issue and we can't do it or our asses are on the line. We eventually, after 15 days, came to um, a, a solution where my GP, who had administered vitamin C to my dad previously, months months before, um, was able to come into the hospital, into the lion's den, so to speak, and administer vitamin C. Um, but, of course, he was at death's door, doorstep right then. He was in multiple organ failure, and by the time I got it to him, and the first vitamin C actually turned the, the ship around. Uh, we, we started to have a, a big drop in the CRP. His um, kidney function went up from 27 to 33%. We we, we had a small win, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And then I needed it every six hours, right? That's the protocol. Every six hours, massive dosages. I could only get half the dose and they, they, they literally tricked me from like uh, my GP could only come in, in between her, her clinic, you know, so she could only come 12 hourly. And then they did things like get me out of the room while she was coming in and then they'd tell her there's no line available and she'd have to go. Shit like that went down. Um, and so. We got three in, but they were 18 hours apart and it was just too late. And only when my GP said to me, now we are beyond um, saving your dad, um, did I let go, you know. Um, I love just hearing that just, it should not be that way. No one should have to fight in that way. And, and yeah. Yeah, it's it's beyond words and I'm so... Um, no. I'm still working through the the aftermath of that because my dad was a fighter. You know, he uh, in his lucid moments he would tell me he wanted to stay here. He wanted to fight with us, and so I was fighting for him with everything I had. And, and that chance was taken away. Whether we would have failed anyway doesn't matter. Um, I was speaking to a lawyer last night about trying to fight to get the right to try law passed because that is a a thing in America. 
Um, yeah. So, I, I, you know, because I've, I've, I've had another couple of patients who have come to me in desperate states similar and I've helped them and we've lost the battle every time to be able to do the simple thing of giving people intravenous vitamin C when there's no other chance and that may not may or may not save them, but we should have the right to try these reasonable yeah, things. Absolutely. And it's it, to me it's just it's just wrong and it's 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 just archaic and the bureaucracy behind these and these people that sit in ivory towers and make judgments. You know, there's an I mean, <laughs> sorry, I've gone carried no, away. Not, no, sorry. This is you are still fighting the good fight in this. And now you're doing it for your mother and you're doing it for so many others that listen and follow you. And you are the light, you are the light at the front, the flashlight on the dark path, trying to help us navigate this. And so this is yet another opportunity, like where someone's going to listen, who knows an attorney that knows someone who's going to say, okay, let's get the right to try here because that has been a game changer. It's part of why we're building this hospital in the United States is now we have an environment Wow. Just that, you know, it's like there are opportunities, there are little doorways opening. And my understanding is it is a little more challenging in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, even to get certain labs, like I have a lot of patients yeah. who have to fly far, far away to go and have proper evaluation and proper labs done because they can't get them there. We're working on that, by the way, just so you Good, know. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the piece is that these are the stories that tug my heartstrings that say, this is why you get up and do what you do. Because there are so many times when you, it feels futile. It does. And there's so many times when I think, you know, I could make a living a lot easier doing yes. something else, you know. <laughs> why don't I, know, I, just I my back? about going back to waiting tables, you know, there's times you're just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, but no, but I, lo- I mean, when I hear these stories, when I, 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 I meet these patients because I get to speak all over the world. I get to get letters from all over the world. I get people, I get, I get upgraded to an up cl- a first class on a flight back from <laughs> Athens sure. once because the guy saw my name on the roster. He and his wife had both had cancer. Both of them had picked up my book, read my book, applied things for my book, and both got through their cancer. And he was like, geez, I mean, to not even know who is listening, who's there, who's with you, because it can feel lonely when you're bucking the grain as hard as I am, as hard as you are, it can feel very, very isolated and lonely. And so it is very important that all of our voices are heard, that we can share to say, I feel you, I get it. I'm here doing my own battle with this. I'm here, you know, supporting us in any way that I can. And so my hope is this conversation, it took all kinds of crazy turns and twists. Yeah. Is it inspires folks to get hungry, to learn more for themselves or for their loved one, because what you're being spoon fed is just simply not enough. You have to become your own advocate you have to become an advocate for the person that you love. Yeah. And that's the only way this is going to change. And yeah. this is so this is incredibly grateful for this for this um for this conversation. Yeah, me too. And I just um, and I'd love to have you on again so that we can actually dive into some of the um, you know biochemistry <laughs> stuff. Maybe we can get yes. your husband on here as well, um, so that we can actually you know okay, these are some of the things we can do. And I think some of the messages we take away is that the, everybody go and get the metabolic approach to cancer book. Everybody go to Doctor Winter's site. Everybody download that thing. And, and this is for people who have cancer or not cancer because it's yeah. about prevention. Because as you said, by 2030, they expect the cancer rates to be doubling sort of thing. Um, 
it, it, so we all need to be in that prevention space as best we can. And, you know, there's still a lot to be researched. There's still a lot to learn. And, but you've, people, how can people actually get to work with you or your team or one of your trained um, doctors or advocates? What's the best way for them to do that? Perfect. Well, I'll have everybody go check out www.mtih.org, Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health.org. That also links you back into my site, drnasha.com. But that's our nonprofit site of the hospital, the network, the educational platforms, even connects you to events and whatnot that we're doing here to change the narrative globally. It also has our directory of physicians who've, um, who are on the site who can still take patients because we have to keep pulling doctors off as their yeah. practices and circulate them through. Um, so it's constantly changing. So check back for that. Also our site of directory for patient advocates, because you can work with an advocate as well. And so they're, they're global at this point. And so we, you know, it, you can see who's out there to help you now, but you might also listen to this and be inspired to encourage your doctor to come take this training or you as make, become an advocate yourself. We need the help. It's yeah. just that simple. This is not, this doesn't put money in our pockets. It puts resources on the planet for the thousands and thousands and thousands of people begging for this approach. And so it really is an opportunity of creating a very, very powerful community of like-minded individuals who recognize that there's a lot more that can be done yeah. and gives you resources so that you can go out there feeling confident to have these conversations and not feel like you're in a battle of, you know, by yourself. Yeah. So mtih.org is an incredible resource that has all of the things um, and people, the metabolic approach to cancer book is very helpful. And then I had a second book come out from a co-author and another book, um, mistletoe and the future uh, emerging future of integrative oncology, which even though it's a very mistletoe dense, it also talks about where we are in healthcare and the true bridge of integrative medicine um, with uh, a cancer process. So there's a lot of great nuggets and you'll hear from six of my other amazingly brilliant, compassionate uh, colleagues that are also writing in that book as well. So wow. I hope I get to see you or your listeners out there in the world, engaging and sharing these stories and, and reaching out and, and supporting each other right now, because I, one of the first things I said to you when we got on is like, who's taking care of Lisa right now? So I'm going to put a little shout out to you <laughs> guys. Say she's amazing. No, like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're a beautiful mess and that your heart is so huge. We need you to be healthy and to be taken care of. We need you to put your own oxygen mask on. So I also need everyone to energetically let's hug this woman fiercely because she is an absolute trooper for all of us as well. And I'm really Thank honored you. that Maddie introduced us and I know our paths are just starting to yeah, yeah, we, we, we're going to cross again. I desperately need to have you on to talk mistletoe and cardiolipin and membranes and, you know, you all go. the stuff I that I wanted to I'm do. In, I'm in, I'm in. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, you're, you're an angel and I just am so grateful that, uh, you know, you, you've had your experiences, you've come out the other side, you're helping so many thousands of people and together um, and with all the other people that are in this world, and there's a lot of us now, um, we will help spread the word. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Winters. Just absolutely marvellous. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.